You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're fortunate this evening to have such a talented local author with us. Ladies and gentlemen, Joanne Rose Leonard is the author of The Soup Has Many Eyes. It's uh, this wonderful kind of journey memoir. It's a beautiful book, and her her newest book is a novel. It's called The Healer of Fox Hollow, and, and I would call it just a lovely work of American magic realism. Thank you for joining us, Joanne. Thank you. Thank you, Capitola Book Cafe, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, Joanne, uh, why don't you give us a little setup? The book takes place in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, where Ed Tompkins, who is a widower whose wife died in childbirth, uh, it cares for his little daughter and works at a lumber mill. And then in 1960, during the night, one night when Layla is five, uh, she has a devastating injury which renders her mute. In a nearby church where her babysitter attends, a church where they practice the laying on of hands and the handling of serpents, the pastor declares that Layla is learning to speak in new tongues. And shortly after, it's discovered that she has the gift of healing others. Even the area's local skeptical physician uh, is forced to re-examine his tenants, uh, his scientific tenants, when Layla is the only one who can heal his son, not heal, but relieve his suffering uh, when his son comes back from Vietnam with his legs blown off by a landmine. Then when Layla is 19, she, a secret is revealed to her that challenges everything that everyone holds true. So it's a story uh, about loss and survival. It's a story that explores doubt versus the miraculous and probes what it means to be truly healed. It's one of the things I think that's really interesting about this book is the way it plays with belief systems. And then let's read, let's just hear your voice in the book. Sometimes five-year-old Layla had night terrors and woke up wailing. But tonight it wasn't really a scream that roused her father from sleep as much as a staccato shriek. Having a bad dream, Ducky, Ed called out as he shuffled down the hall to Layla's bedroom, rubbing his eyes and blinking hard to clear away the blurriness. Just hours ago, when Ed tucked his daughter into bed and kissed her goodnight, Layla was in good spirits, her cheeks still rosy from chasing fireflies. During the summer, capturing lightning bugs was a bedtime ritual for Layla, and earlier this evening, her blue flannel nightgown billowed out like a bellflower as she swooped and twirled against the darkening sky. I caught one, Layla said, cupping her hands over the pulsing glow. She scampered across the grass and up the wooden steps to the porch swing where her father sat swaying. Fireflies are your mama coming back to light up the sky with a thousand candles because she was so glad you were born, Ed told his daughter. He yawned. Time for bed now, Ducky. Just one more, please, Daddy. One, but that'll be all, he said knowing that as the daylight hours got longer, his sleep got shorter. After Ed put his daughter to bed, he turned on the radio to hear Friday's forecast and sat down at his desk in the living room to pay a few bills. Cold War tensions mount. U.S. officials continue to dismiss Soviet accusations that the downed U-2 pilot was involved in espionage. And that's the news for Thursday, June 23, 1960. At 10.30, Ed closed his checkbook and filed the bills in one of the cubby holes of the roll-top desk. Before bolting the back door, he peered out into the impenetrable dark that enveloped their log home in the surrounding woods of Fox Hollow. A hoot owl called from down in the valley. 
a sure sign, despite the clement forecast, bad weather was on its way to their part of eastern Tennessee. Owls over weathermen every time, Ed mused. Without bothering to change into his pajamas, Ed collapsed on his bedspread. Avis, the older sister of Ed's deceased wife, might disapprove if she knew her brother-in-law went to bed without undressing, saying it didn't set a good example for Layla. The babysitter, Ida Mae Yeagley, who was a stickler for rules, certainly wouldn't consider it proper. But with no one to spoon with in his empty bed, the tired father viewed it as just another willing economy he made for his daughter. The piercing screams from Layla's bedroom intensified as Ed, now fully roused, hurried down the hall. Hearing his daughter gag between shrieks, his mind raced. It wasn't the right season for the grip and too early for eating the wrong kind of berry. Tainted food, maybe? When Ed switched on the light, he could hardly process what he saw. Now, one of the things I think that you do so well in this book is create a world for us because most of us haven't lived in, in Tennessee. We, we haven't, this is uh, a time that's pretty remotely historical to most of us. So I'd like you to talk about creating that world both, you know, as a backdrop in your mind and then putting the words to that world so that your language works within the time and the place and the characters that you created. Uh, how did you go about doing that? I mean, that's a lot of decisions to make. Well, Google <laughs> is very helpful to, uh, to, to um, inform any, any age and stage. You can go and find out what television programs there were, what was happening in the news, and that uh, U2 espionage where we were denying that that was, that was a spy. That is one of the first uh, that seemed an appropriate uh, and synchronistic piece of news because that was a lie. And this book is about what is the truth and how do we, whose perspective do we see the truth from. And uh, when, when I decided uh, to set the book in Tennessee, I knew that, that, I, that I wanted to uh, involve the Pentecostal signs followers who handle serpents. Uh, and we'll get to that later. But w one, one of the signs following churches, or several of them, are in Tennessee. And I have been a fan since early, early times, since my I guess, teens of the, the Foxfire journals. And I always was fascinated with how they did things, how we call it now a small footprint, but how out of survival and necessity, uh, the, the, the mountain folks of the Appalachian mountain folks had a very small footprint, but yet they thrived in many ways. And I was also very enamored of the way that they cut to the, the pit of, uh, they, they pitted circumstance into wisdom, into just very pragmatic wisdom, and I just loved that. Uh, so I tried to work in uh, a lot of this, the Appalachian Mountain sayings, and a lot of them came to me out of, <laughs> I don't know where, the ether. Um, so. Did you do a lot of reading um, of uh, journals and histories beforehand and kind of <clears throat> immerse yourself in the background and then let that bubble up through your writing? Or did you kind of do your research as you were writing and say, oh, my God, well, I've come here, and uh, now what do I do? Oh, well, I go out to Google or, or something. How, how, I mean, talk a little bit about um, putting yourself in this time and, and, and place uh, and then, again, getting to the, the language, because I think the language is really beautiful in this book. It's, the prose is really evocative of that time. Mm -hmm. It was kind of both. I don't really remember <laughs> how many revisions ago. I know I did um, a great deal of research on the Pentecostal signs-following churches, and that has its own uh, kind of 
language uh, that, that uh, comes about, and as I said, the Foxfire journals, and then trying to fit in what was happening when I didn't know what was happening during those times. But I'd say, I'd say that the uh, reading lots about the Appalachian folklore, Appalachian uh, superstitions, Appalachian mountain folks, it, there's just a poetic lilt and a poetry about it that just mesmerizes me. So. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the things I think that's interesting in this book is the nuanced vision, and you spoke of this a little bit, about of, of the truth. of, And it's the truth of stuff that's written down and photographed versus the way we experience the truth. And I think that comes through in the language. So I'd like you to talk about it a bit about the difference between the experiential truth of your characters, how they experience things. Because we can experience something that might be perfectly ordinary and everyday and normal to, I, I might have some experience that I think is some kind of mystical flying saucer or, uh, you know, a, an experience with an angel that somebody else might say, well, you just saw a headlight on a wall. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's perspective. I mean, we could all sit here and close one eye, and what we're seeing with the other eye is what's the truth to us. And if we open the other eye, something could be happening right over in our periphery that changes our whole truth of, of what's happening or in, in back of us. And, and truth is, is kind of wobbly and slippery like that for us all. Uh, when I did the book, uh, uh, the soup has many eyes, and, and interviewed the relatives who were still living. Many of them had the same experiences, and yet the truth for them and the story, the telling of that truth, was really different. Uh, so I, that was one of the things I was really trying to explore in this story: is how we perceive, how we perceive things, how our experience colors, how we perceive that, how our beliefs color uh, and change how we think about things and then how we act and eventually who we become because of our perceptions and how perceptions that are put in at a very early age are sometimes just like science of uh, the earth was flat, now it's round. <laughs> now, now we may find out something that we're you know, subquarks or, or, you know, parallel universes or, or something uh, at a later time. It changes. It's a continuing revelation what the truth and perspective is. You know, the, the power of this book, as with many books, lies with the characters. And I'd like you to talk about creating this, these great family relationships, this small community where people are bound in many ways more tightly than many of us are bound to our families that are spread out across the state. I mean, getting into that mindset is you put us there, and it's a really interesting place to be. So talk about um, creating that kind of different perception of the way you would relate to the people around you. Mm -hmm. Well, community, in, I, I think anybody who's come, come from a small town or, or, or an, especially an insular community, as, as Fox Hollow is, knows that uh, people depend on each other and they rely on each other in times of trouble and times of celebration. And for Ed, especially, who's left without a wife and Layla, who's left without a mother, her sister, uh, the, the mother's sister, Aunt Avis, lives uh, 100 miles away, but she's very present in the life of Layla and Ed, and so are her cousins. And the neighbors, of course, uh, the father has to leave her with the babysitter, Ida Mae Yeagley, who has eight kids of her own and who's the one who attends this uh, church. Ed is so busy he doesn't have time to go to church. <laughs> But uh, Ida Mae Yeagley attends this, this uh, serpent handling and faith healing church. And she has eight children with uh, one of the children being with severe cerebral palsy. Uh, so there are 
there are a lot, and, and, and one of the things that I meant to say earlier was the reason I said it in this time where there were Vietnam vets coming back with all kinds of post-traumatic stress uh, disease and, um, and blown off limbs and, you know, trying to bring the parallels back to something that's very present and topical for us these days with, with our soldiers coming back with so many injuries and so much stress. You know, um, <clears throat> there's something, I, I want you to, to read this scene on uh, page 110 uh, because this captures a kind of, I, I think, a really uh, timeless uh, aspect of literature. So read it and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. Uh, are you talking about Samson? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me give you a, a little bit of a preface. Layla is five years old. This is after her devastating injury that leaves her mute. And uh, this is at, takes place at the babysitter's house, Ida Mae Yeagley and their eight kids. Teenage Zeb was on a tractor, and he accidentally backed over and killed the family dog, Samson. And the family dog was very beloved because the summer before, he had saved one of the Yeagley children from drowning in a creek. Uh, so he had saved little Sarah Jane. The stricken family congregated around the lifeless animal. Mrs. Yeagley handed baby Jake to Rebecca and ordered everyone to hush. She put her hand near Samson's still wet nose, feeling for breath, and head on his ribcage pressed her ear against his black and white fur. He's gone for good. Sarah Jane started wailing. Everyone patted Samson, shedding tears, saying what a terrible shame it was. That's enough now, Ida Mae said stiffly. Zeb, you best go and make a resting place to put Zeb in, to, to put Samson in. She took baby Jake from Rebecca. I'm going back in the house to check on Peter, Petey. Mikey, Micah, you come along with me. We'll hold the funeral after lunch. Layla lingered outside after everyone else left. It was so crowded around Samson, she hadn't had the chance to say goodbye. She knelt down beside him and laid her hand on his furry chest. Halfway back to the house, Mrs. Yeagley turned and called, Hurry up now, Layla. I need you to set out the cups and plates for dinner. I have to make this quick, Samson, Layla said in her mind. Even though you can't hear anymore and I can't talk, you're probably already in an angel, and angels know everything. I want to thank you for how kind you've always been to me, especially since my injury licking me and telling me with your eyes that you understood all the hurt I've been going through. Soon as you get to heaven, Samson, please find my mama. Tell her how much I miss her and love her. I hope they have heaps of meaty bones for you in heaven. I'll miss you, Samson. I learned a lot of goodness from you that I'll hold on to always. Layla started to get up but stumbled and fell into Samson's chest. She knew he was dead, but apologized anyway, patting and kissing him before she stood up and started back to the house. Mrs. Yeagley was on the porch clanging a big cowbell to call everyone in. Dinner time, she shouted. Come in for di- Abruptly, the busy mother stopped mid-sentence and clutched her heart. As the steel bell clattered down the porch steps, Layla ran to her petrified. The shock of Samson getting run over was trying on everyone in the Yeagley household, but Layla, young as she was, knew that the older you got, the more reasons there were for having your heart give out. Mrs. Yeagley's eyes were frozen open like she was having a cataleptic fit. Her gaped mouth emitted horrible, otherworldly sounds. Layla didn't know what to do, so without taking her eyes off Mrs. Yeagley, she picked up the bell and started ringing wildly in hopes that Zeb or Rebecca or Rachel would speed up their normal pace. When the distraught child looked around to see if anyone was coming, she practically had a conniption herself. Ever so slowly, Samson wobbled toward the house. Layla dropped the cowbell and rang, 
ran to him. She was hugging and kissing Samson when the other kids started to appear. Ida May, having fully recovered her faculties, joined in the patting and hugging. Finally, Mrs. Yagley said, give the dog room to breathe. He's got some catching up to do. <laughs> I didn't kill Samson. Zeb's relief poured from every fiber, just stunned him real bad. That dog was deader than a doornail, Mrs. Yegley said. Nary a breath nor a heartbeat. I witnessed it myself. Then how's he alive, Mama, Sarah Jane said. Samson's risen by pure miracle, Mrs. Yegley said. Now, in, in that passage, <clears throat> you play with a, a, a really classic American trope, and you do a great job of it. This is uh, Old Yeller uh, meets Stephen King. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, there's something that I think is really interesting, that the death of a pet is so much more affecting, even in a, in a book, than often than, you know, a, a character, a human character. And I'd like you to just talk about um, using that and using that to bring in that kind of element of the fantastic that, you know, is going to be one of the themes of the book and kind of playing these realistic tropes of, you know, every pet, you get a dog, it's going to die versus this kind of the, the, miracle, the miracle of know, the, the resurrection. So talk about playing those two uh, kind of uh, countering themes off of one another. Well, first of all, I, I think that um, having Samson be without speech and Layla without speech is an important, compelling theme for me of how much silence speaks and how much we learn from silence and how Layla learned in silence to learn what was unsaid, not just listen, but to learn what was, what was not said. And uh, yes, I think animals are, are, uh, are very often, we can feel more compassion in some ways for animals than we can, can with people with all their quirks and foibles and no, it's true. I, I, I think it's. I think it's interesting too. Now, let's kind of pursue this too a, a little bit because um, you do a, a, a good job of bringing in these kind of, of these, you know, fantasy elements of the the resurrection and you know the the serpent handling. <clears throat> and I, what I like is that you create in this in Fox Hollow, you create a place where the boundaries between. Um, uh, what we normally experience here in Capitola and what we see, you know, the kind of things that don't happen are kind of, it's broken down, it's porous. Stuff moves back and forth. And I'd like you to just talk about how you uh, went about crafting that, that barrier, you know, the, the holes in, in reality where you said, okay, now something's going to happen that I'm not going to read about in the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Or maybe you might. I don't know. I haven't read The Sentinel in a while, so. Well, yes, it, it is permeable. And I think that's the way that truth is, at least for me, how I experience truth. It's, it's permeable, and, and it, it shifts just like night vision. You see things at night, and they, don't, they have blurrier outlines. They don't... They don't. They are not as solid and fixed as they are during the daytime, and I think one of the things I was uh, trying to explore is how what might seem fantasy to some of us, um, and that's one of the reasons I I particularly chose a serpent handling church because I was trying to explore um, belief systems that are very foreign from my own mindsets to see if I could crawl into the skin of somebody with a really different mindset, how I could, uh, it, what commonality, what is there that lies underneath? Could I find something that lies underneath? And I think after having done some research and having um, experienced some 
not serpent handling church members, but but very fervent um, evangelical church members, it's not a bit fantasy for them. And um, so you have something that's very real and palpable uh, that from another perspective is fantastical to some of us. And that's exactly why Doc Fredericks was put in the story, was to be a foil and flint and the counterpoint, uh, the, the skeptical sci scientific perspective. If you can't prove it, then how do you, you know, it's something maybe not explained yet, but you can't just attribute it to miracle. So I'm, I'm trying to play with both, both sides of the perspectives there. Now, uh, a lot of this is based, I think, um, you were telling me earlier that the, uh, this is based on something that is out, outside the scope of this book, yeah. which was uh, the, the 2000 elections. So tell us a little bit about making that journey as a writer and saying, that, you know, how that experience to you uh, was transformed into this prose. And I think that's a really, that is what's so interesting about reading and writing is that you can start in one place and end up in a completely different place. And yet we as readers can kind of grok the, that, you know, that commonality. We can get underneath and say, okay, there's something in here. And this is, you know, about what people say is true and what may actually be true and what matters to us and how we react to it. Well, in the 2008 uh, elections, in 2007 actually, what happened, and none of this matters if it isn't a gripping story. <laughs> but I was so dispirited with everybody, the stridency of the we, the them, if you believe this, you're evil, and we can't talk to you, and you're the enemy. And, and everybody was being silenced. The, so many voices were being silenced uh, by this kind of strident rhetoric. So. I, I really was terribly dispirited, and I, and I thought, is there a way that I could, you know, I could put myself in a different belief system that I could understand the commonality that uh, that that we share, so that I, I knew I was part of being as judgmental as everybody else, and at the same time as as so many things happen. I, I was watching a documentary about serpent handling churches, and I thought, wow, that's a belief system that is very foreign to me because people get bitten, they get very sick, they die, and yet they still believe. It's from a biblical passage, Mark 16, that, uh, that, that People shall cast out devils and speak in new tongues and lay on hands and be healed and take up serpents. So they are, they are literally, and they shall drink any deadly thing and, uh, and it won't hurt them. So this is very literal from the Bible. And so it was from uh, watching that documentary and then seeing where serpent handling, you know, I thought, well, there, there are bombers, underwear bombers, but that's not part of our American culture. What is part of our Amer American culture? So I started exploring where some of these churches were, and when I saw Tennessee, click. <laughs> the Foxfire journals and, you know, something that I love and is always resonant in my mind as as a special kind of wisdom and poetry. Well, uh, talk about, uh, I mean, this book has a, a really uh, a great kind of uh, almost an epic feel to it. There's a, a, a lot of uh, really complex plotting that goes on here. This, ta this isn't just like 24 hours in the life of, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't uh, of, a, of a bomber or something. This is, you know, a whole, uh, a lives rot whole, communities rot whole, uh, complicated and well worked out and well woven. Um, when you wrote this, when you came up with this, 
did you say, okay, I'm going to do this kind of epic, or did you just kind of start with a, like a little point in the beginning and then explore your way outward? The latter. <laughs> My husband can tell you I, I have no sense of direction in life, <laughs> driving. <laughs> uh, when I say go this way, he goes that way because he knows I have an almost opposite sense of direction. And the same thing for writing. It just, you know, it's just being in the moment and then what comes next. And, and I don't know how that comes. It comes without a map. Uh, but it just slowly un unfolds. Well, let's, uh, you were talking about Doc earlier. Mm -hmm. Let, let's ha have this uh, reading uh, from page uh, 232. Okay. This will give us a good picture of kind of the, the other side of the coin from, from resurrecting dogs. So Layla is now 17, and Doc's uh, son has come home from Vietnam with his legs blown off and he's called Walter Reed and all the experts and none of them know how to deal with this phantom pain. There's no, there, there's nothing they really know how to do, especially in severe cases. So his wife is so distraught and he can't help his son no matter what he's tried. So they finally call Layla, who's 17. Before his son's return from the war, when Doc Fredericks thought about faith healing, one word came to mind, placebo. Doc was incredulous and mildly perturbed that so many of his patients chose to go to Layla. When Layla arrived at Doc Fredericks, he introduced her to Brian, a more chiseled version of his father but with a forbidding countenance and haunted eyes. Layla stooped down in front of the injured soldier's wheelchair and glanced up at Brian. He nodded. Go ahead. Even though Layla was well acquainted with the power of the unseen, the first time she worked her hands down Brian's thighs to his, where his legs used to be, that limbless space sent so strong a shockwave through her she would have been knocked down if she wasn't already kneeling. There was no way to explain why the searing throb of Brian's missing limbs subsided when the mute teen placed her hands on the space where once his size 34 long trousers and 11 and a half shoes had been, but it did. When Layla's first session brought Brian relief, uncertainty began to worm deep into Doc's core. His concept of hooey turned into the smallest flicker of hope, guarded to be sure, but nonetheless hope. From then on, Layla treated Brian on a regular basis. Silently, Doc sat and observed firsthand how his son's intractable pain vanished during Layla's prayerful ministrations for days afterwards as well. Yet Doc couldn't determine whether the relief Layla provided was medical mystery or miracle. Miracle was a word that stuck in the doctor's skeptical gullet no more swallowable than snake oil, stuck in Doc's spiritual craw as well as he cared for his maimed son. Now, <clears throat> in this passage, we get uh, this, this really great kind of uh, perspective of a man on the cusp of seeing his own belief undone. And I think that that's a really interesting trick to bring us start out on one side and end up on the other. And I'm wondering if that if that's based on your own experience in some way. And if not, just kind of talk about honing that for your character, because that's got to be kind of the you know the peak for him, in a, in a sense of he he's achieved the the pinnacle of hard-headedness only to have his hard-headedness completely undone by his own hard-headedness because he's forced to say, well, look, this happened. Yes, and, and it gets even uh, more powerful as Layla has her own beliefs totally shattered by an experience, which is a spoiler, so, so I won't go into it, but she's totally rug-pulled from everything she believes, as is her family and the community. So it, it really is, uh, I, I think it, it, 
many people share the experience of having what they believe challenged at, at different points in their life. Annihilated. Annihilated, yeah, the and, dark night of the soul. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a scary experience because it's, it, it's hurtful in many ways, but there's no external evidence of that. It just destroys your heart. Yes. We'll talk about creating a, a broken heart, but in the, in the mind of a skeptic, which is an interest. I mean, that's a kind of a contradiction in terms, but it, that's, that's what happens to, to the doc. Well, it, I, th I think desperation and circumstances uh, alter us all. I think sometimes we, our head can go along, trotting along on a certain path, and then sometimes circumstances hit us in the face and or rug pull us or earthquake us or tsunami us and everything changes everything mm -hmm. uh, it's it's existential <laughs> I, it's a, I think you know it's a sense and this happens to uh, more than once in this book it's a sense of uh, personal apocalypse where your entire world essentially is destroyed and you have to look, well, now what do I do? Well, as a parent, I mean, the doctor can be as, as logical and methodical and text-based as, uh, as he wants to be in his practice, although he is a country doctor and there is an experience of how country doctoring can be real different from doctoring in the city when you have everything at your fingertips um, and you have to invent and you have to improvise. But um, he, he, you know, as, as a parent, it's a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> as a parent, anybody who knows as a parent, you, you, you would, uh, you know, you would do anything for your children if, if you thought that would change uh, uh, an outcome that is dire. Well, uh, you're, you're talking about parents and children and, and families figure large in this book. And there's uh, a large variety in different types of families. And I think that that was a, an interesting aspect of reading this book was to experience the way the different families interact within themselves and then with one another. So, I mean, but, as a writer, did you like have to map out each family? Is there is this like the tip of an iceberg where you have like, a, a, I guess Bibles or you know chapbooks for each family where they said here's you know this family history, that family history? Uh, no, they kind of take on a life of their own, and and you can, you know, it, all of us live in families, and we all know the the tug of war that happens when this family believes Ed has a real different idea of parenting than I, Ida Mae Yeagley who paddles and and um, Ed, Ed says when when you teach a, a critter or a child a lesson don't be surprised if they learn it so he doesn't believe in paddling and Ida Mae Yeagley is totally believes that that you need to use the rod uh, in order to raise a kid and Aunt Avis, the sister-in-law of his dead wife, has, you know, lives in the city and, and she, so you just put them in their circumstances and, and you, uh, you let them play out how they start to come in conflict with each other and, and it's like we all are, you know, one, one year as when we were raising our kids, Dr. Spock said, don't spank, and then it comes out, spank, don't spank, spank. Um, you know, you get totally confused and you have to kind of go by your own, uh, your own feelings about what's right and hope, hope for the best. <laughs> Could you talk about creating you know, the big plot arc of this book. There's a lot of stuff that happens. It takes place over years. Um, did you know how, how um, long the book would be? Did you understand the scope of what you were uh, going to end up having when you started the book? No, not at all. You know, you just start something spinning for me. I start something spinning and then 
it's like life. You never know who you're going to meet in the pickle aisle of the grocery store, and then you know things turn in a totally different direction. No, I, w I wish I did. I mean, it, it's I had I often envy writers who can outline everything and kind of fit everything in into the puzzle and tetris it around until it makes the right compact hole. That's not me. I just can't do that. It's a uh, you're kind. Of, I think you're in the majority, if I'm not mistaken. Or it's pretty evenly split between the outliners and the uh, the uh, well. I think that happens next, and and so I I, I would say you're in good company. Now, uh, did this come out perfectly the first time? <laughs> Here's what I would hear every time. Uh, I would hand a chapter to my husband to read. He'd either come in and, and come striding in, or I would hear, <clears throat> and then I'd know, oh dear. And that was through about the first six revisions of the story. And then it got to an agent, and she had more revisions. And then when it got to the editor of this little publisher, then there were some more minor fidgets, but there were seven major revisions and or more. I stopped counting. You can't count after a while. <laughs> Just ask yourself, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> now, uh, does this mean that you would write the whole thing, finish it, and then go back and uh, you know, tweeze what you had, or did you have like a kind of a constantly shifting, morphing mass? I'm just curious. I mean, do you are, are there like seven different versions of this on your hard drive somewhere? Well, the first, the very first version was written as uh, a, a journal. Layla, who is mute, it's a journal. So I had it all in first person and all her thoughts and feelings, and I got into a lot of trouble with trying to get the perspectives of other people uh, just in her journal. So then I, you know, I, I, I segued into uh, a narrator. And then after a while, then there's a, a, a narrator who disappears after a while, and you don't see who that narrator is until later. But that didn't come till about four versions later. So yes, it, it kept morphing and it's a slow process for me. How, how long did it take you to write this? Do you mind telling us? <laughs> I, I, uh, it's like confessing that you're on a diet and you just ate a big piece of chocolate cake. The guilt <laughs> is just so huge. But it was at least three years every day, all day long, and then, mm -hmm. and then into uh, more revisions after that. That's pretty peppy. I've talked to many people who spent 10 years on their first novel, really? and that wasn't, that wasn't quite as even, as substantial as this. So don't feel bad. That's, your, that's, a, that's, that's Weight Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> you did good. Uh, as, a, you know, as a writer uh, working on this this work of fiction set, you know, in a remote time and place, you know, but you're immersed mercilessly with this time and place. Uh, could you talk just about trying to make sure that you know keep keeping the Chinese firewall up? I mean, that must have been difficult just to make sure that you know you stayed when you went to this time and place. Did you did you feel like you were transporting yourself? Give us an idea of your feelings when you were writing this. I mean, did you separate yourself from this world or enter kind of a, a, a trance-like state? Because the the feeling of when we read that, that's how it feels to us. Mm. I mean, you know, you kind of, it's reading is, I think, a, a form of guided meditation. Mm. And, and um, this really puts us in this place. So I'm wondering if you felt like you were putting yourself in this place and then kind of just translating that to the paper or if you were saying okay I'm here's this other place I'm gonna 
write about it and translate it, but I'm all here all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. I, I, was, uh, I was trained as a, an actor. I went to uh, my, my BS is in theater from Northwestern. So I, I had lots of experience in uh, willful suspension of disbelief and getting into character and getting into the given circumstances. So that's something that is. Um, that makes sense. Perfect sense. That explains it. Uh, you know, I would I would put myself. I wouldn't say it was a trance, but I would just put myself into that character as much of that character. And it's when you're when you're acting, you need to know not just what's happening on stage, but where you're coming from and where you're going to, and what's in your underwear drawer and what's in your cupboard, you know, what kind of food. You, you just you kind of just your imagination is always just fizzing and that's kind of how it was for me. And then when I get brain dead after, you know, a day of writing, then I would go back to it in the evening and start, you know, your brain's so tired then things that are just really clunky and awful and don't fit start to leap out in that state of mind. And then I was very present. Then I was just more editing. But, but while I was writing it, the world became very real to me. It, so why it seems real to us. Uh, could you uh, read, let's, let's hear from page 394 through 398. It's, it's Damien. Ah, uh, OK. All of it or cuts? <laughs> uh, you that's here at all. Okay. We have a little bit of time. So, so Damien is, uh, this is, Layla is now 19. Damien is a guy who uh, came down the road where she lives in Fox Hollow, and he swerved to, uh, so he didn't hit a mongrel, and he cracked the fork of his motorcycle, and he comes trotting down the lane um, to see if maybe, you know, she's out in the country, maybe she has something he can fix his motorcycle with. He gets a blowtorch and fixes his motorcycle. They meet, there's a connection between them. Um, and now Layla has had this experience, uh, a very traumatizing experience that has revealed this secret that shatters everything she holds true. So Damien, took off after, after he got his motorcycle fixed. Uh, he took off and he's been sporadically uh, keeping in touch with her uh, through postcards. So he's writing, it's October 6th, 1974, Dear Layla. And, and Damien is also a Vietnam vet and he suffers not from having been injured externally, but he is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Dear Layla, last night I called Brian to see how things were going. When he told me what happened to you, I exploded. If I had been there, that pervert would have wished for a pleasant disemboweling instead. God, Layla, I wish I could do something or say something that would help, but no words seem right. Right now, I'm in a village of less than a thousand people in Alaska, waiting for some Harley parts to come in. Nothing so simple as a cracked fork and a blowtorch, but nothing as mysterious as meeting you, either. According to the locals, I was lucky it was just my cycle that got chewed up by a pavement break. It could have been me for bear meat instead. Out here at the end of time and landmass, they call motorcycles meals on wheels. I wish you could have seen some of the scenery on the highway to Alaska. Maybe it would help ease your pain. I know it's been a good antidote for mine. Watching a moose lumber toward me on my side of the road, its antlers stretched to the side like huge upturned hands, blots out everything else. The beast is so immense its tongue alone could knock me over. Ditto for one of the grizzlies I encountered who could carry, not drag, carry that ton of moose in its mouth at an alarming speed. A man on a motorcycle would be an after-dinner snack. Distraction while riding the Alcon is foolhardy but unavoidable. Mountains the color of distance and dreams, blue lakes mirroring the clouds, 
the trees and mountains with such clarity and depth, you wonder if you're right side up or upside down. Mountain goats that look like cotton bales on white pegs with that clueless who turned out the light look in their eyes, lungs full of road dust, rain sheeting off my face as I plow through mud pudding after a heavy storm. There's more than a little irony in having escaped a bullet in Nam only to get shrapnel in my shin from loose gravel just out of Dawson Creek gives road warrior new meaning. In the meantime, I'm gutting halibut at a local cannery and hoping the Harley parts get here before my posterior freezes on the permafrost. A fellow at the cannery offered me his couch. Another irony. All those nights I spent face down in jungle scum, I longed for a decent bed. But I find no comfort in them now. Anything I can, can't carry with me feels like a distraction. My carcass alone feels like overload, too much baggage banging around in my sack of skin. I did take up his offer, though, when he said I could take out his sea kayak and paddle around an inlet. What a trip, Layla. A seal followed my boat like a play toy, beckoning me farther out from shore, and then came to a standstill in the water, only its head visible above the ripples. I stopped about 15 feet away, and we stared at each other. And suddenly I noticed another seal to the right of it, and then another head popped up on the seal's left. I looked around, and I saw that I was encircled by seals, all motionless, all equidistant from each other, with me at the center, a compass could have drawn a more perfect circle. Can't tell you how long the seals stayed. It felt like what an eternity must feel like. Then the seals disappeared as silently as they had gathered, and I was totally alone. Can't begin to explain it, except that somehow I felt you were there too. Usually most of what I know about a thing is from what I can see, but there is so much more. All the invisible, invisible beneath the visible, unrealized possibilities, the unspoken, the unspeakable. I'm sure most people are trying to cheer you up, Layla. Their words and pats on the back urge you to buck, buck up, get on, get over with it. But in the mysterious way I felt we were connected last spring, I hope you trust that whatever you're feeling has a purpose. I know that's hard to believe. I'm still not sure what that purpose is for me. I don't know why the good and the innocent have to suffer and die. It makes me question God, myself, the whole meaning of life. But since I'm the one who keeps asking the questions, I guess I'm the one who has to figure out the answers, at least for myself. No epiphanies yet. Somehow, though, keeping in touch with the men I was with in Nam gives me a reason to get up in the morning. I don't know why it makes a difference. It just does. When you're holed up that long together, trying to save your own skin and each other, you bond in ways no one can understand except others who have been there. And I know this sounds crazy, but I've come to a conclusion, the smallest beginning of coming to terms about the way I am now. To see what goes on in war, to have done the things I've done, the only sane response is to go insane. I know that Doc Fredericks is seeing to your physical wounds. Let those who love you help you heal the rest, not something I'm particularly good at. I know I push people away. Guilt is a big reason. It's why I got all my tattoos after the war. Another is that I've discovered a new enemy, me. I'm the wrong person to be spouting off about anything, and I don't even know what I'm trying to say other than I wish I could undo what happened to you and what you must be going through now. Stay strong, Layla. Damien. That, well, that, that's such a wonderful piece. And I think what's interesting about it to me was that the, the dual voice, because you're taking on the voice of one character addressing another. So there's a couple of layers there, but we experience it as one pure piece of prose. So I'd like you to just talk about that, you know, and I think that's kind of 
encapsulated in that wonderful line that the only sane response is to go insane. I'm, what is the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. Talk about the kind of dual voice that you kind of achieve there because you're, you're writing from Damien's point of view, but he's talking uh, to Layla. So there's a kind of a, a dual perspective. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, he and Layla had a very special connection. He, when he met her and found out that she had no voice, he was not, uh, he was not as, as troubled by it as most people who f found that Layla was mute. And she did communicate. She always carried a little tablet with a piece of, uh, uh, with a pencil so that she could write people things. So I think he was, um, I think they had a special connection that he was able to try and address what he knows, what he's experienced as, as this, dark night of the soul, this having everything uh, uh, that you believe in or that you think is true rug pulled from you. Um, and I think he's trying to speak to her as well as speak to himself mm -hmm. as he tries to recover. He is, by the way, a poet. I mean, he, he says they're rants and existential scribblings, but he is a poet, so he, um, he's able to translate some of the, the experience that he's having in Alaska to her to try and help heal her in the way that he can through words. Mm -hmm. And she heals through the power that everyone thinks she has through her ability to use Reiki or faith healing or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. healing touch. You're the poet. <laughs> Do we have any questions from the audience? Yes. Well, it just seems like you had to live there and been with people like that. I felt that's how I, it was for me when I read the Foxfire uh, yeah, journals. They, they just, you know, the, the kids, it was this, this language teacher who uh, wanted to get his kids involved in, in uh, so he sent them out into the Appalachian Mountains and had them uh, interview Aunt Becky on how she dressed a hog and Uncle Henry on how he built a log cabin and how uh, Aunt Becky made sauerkraut and and it just it just created a world for me uh, that and then you created it in your family it was so believable oh I'm glad yes Peg I left East Tennessee in on May 30th 1960 Mm -hmm. And the, the ability to capture that both cognitive and non-cognitive ways of knowing. I didn't know that the rest of the world didn't process things that way mm -hmm. until I, I guess I got to California. <laughs> and um, it was so real <coughs> that I ran into somebody who was, was is doing something in Africa with a kind of injury that Layla has, and I it was, you know, I came home and it was late at night and I was getting ready to call you and say, we've got to get Layla to, to, to connect and maybe it was, she became so real to me. And I appreciate that. We appreciate that that happened. <laughs> Any more questions? So the majority of the, um, the research that you did uh, was prompted because of the journals, and then you, um, and then you got all the information that you need from the internet. Did you go to um, this part of the country and camp out in um, in some some towns and get to know people, um, <coughs> or was everything done remote from you know from your home? We've driven through the Great Smoky Mountains, uh, and I wish that I could have 
done exactly what you said, done real live embedded research, but that was not uh, to be the case. So it was extrapolation, <laughs> uh, internet, books, lots of YouTubes. You can hear people on, uh, you can look on YouTube and see people handling serpents. It's quite hair-raising. Um, and, you know, we, we, we did experience that the, the Smoky Mountains as we drove through, and, and it is a magical place. Sometimes I think the imagination works better if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Karen? Can I ask what your own religious background is? My own religious background is, is um, I was raised as uh, ref in Reformed Judaism. Um, I my parents were high holiday Jews, so we weren't, you know, we weren't, um, didn't keep a whole lot of traditions, but, but uh, that's how I was raised, and that was the, the genesis of The Soup Has Many Eyes, as I realized when our, our kids were going off that I hadn't told them a really crucial story about a, a little girl who was lost during the pogroms of my family. Um, that is always when I got down to my last nerve, you know, I'm holding on, I knew I could reach down into the marrow of my bones, into my ancestral strengths, and, and pull strength from those stories of their escape from the pogroms. Our kids were raised in, a, my husband is uh, from a Lutheran preacher's family, and so I'm from a Jewish background, and we raised our kids spiritually, uh, which is, I guess, mostly where my where where my beliefs and truths as are. What are you working on now? Right now, um, I was working on a, a, another fiction novel, and then as life will have it, I met a woman who is sitting right over there, Teresa Garcia Condon. Um, when we moved from Pennsylvania two years ago, I looked at all the berry fields, and I saw all these workers bent in half like human tables, and and my idea of, you know, oh, are these strawberries perfect? Are these strawberries ripe? Are these strawberries smell good? All of that changed to seeing right out our back door all the, the field workers, and I wondered, who are these people? Where do they come from? Uh, what is their story? And I, without knowing Spanish, I really didn't know how to begin that. And then right in our little senior village, I met... Uh, Teresa and Teresa worked in the berry fields from the time she was she was dragged through the rows by her mother in an apple cart uh, when she was a baby and started working in the fields when she was four or five until she was 18 and then uh, worked in a lot of social service jobs and ended up in the Equal Opportunity Office and uh, Field Office in Washington, D.C., and was uh, uh, an activist in, in the, the movement. She could tell you all of this better than I can. So we're, we're uh, working on her story to bring her story out. Well, that sounds She's like part a, of history. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating story. Mm. Yes? Joanne, do you, um, I imagine you and your husband going to Tennessee with your book and doing a book tour in places down there in those points. Oh, that, uh, you know, that, that might be very interesting. <laughs> it, it could be very interesting. Having videotaped they can do a documentary. Yeah. I, I, maybe some of the people down there would take a lot of issue with some of the things that are in oh, the book. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, and would you mind if we have time or if you want to um, express to us your, how you, your interest in uh, Quakerism? Well, uh, there was a question back there that I, let's take first. Uh, I read an Amazon description of the 
you had you trained with the mind Marcel Marceau. Mm -hmm. Did uh, that training help you in creating Layla? Oh, interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> you know I never put that together. <laughs> but but yes, did did you know that Marcel Marceau was not famous in his own country as much as he was famous around the world because he was so very political, but he never said anything, so they couldn't hold anything against him. <laughs> Uh, and they couldn't really, they couldn't really get it. Okay. It's been lovely having you, Joanne. This is mm -hmm. a wonderful book, and I think that, uh, I hope we sell a b bunch of them, and I think you should take this to uh, Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be here, and thank you all. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Kathy. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.